Welcome to the 34 Welcome to Make Matriarchy Great Again. Good evening and welcome to the 34 Circe Salon. It's 34 Circe After Dark. We're going to be talking about the women of the Celts. And we'll be talking about it with the Dawn, a.k.a. Sam Alden, whom you've met before on our podcast, and all-round actress, producer, writer, stage combat person, founder of Babes with Blades, and lots of good stuff. All of the above, and then some. Welcome. <laughs> Indeed. How are you this lovely evening? This lovely evening? I'm doing quite well, thank you. Very excited to be talking about Celtic warriors and the badasses that they are. I know we both love Boudicca. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Uh, yeah. yeah I, I, no one has done her justice. And I, you know, I don't know if you ever saw, uh, it was on Netflix. Did you ever see the uh, episode of Warrior Women about Boudicca? I don't think I saw that one. I actually did see... Um, Kind of a, a cool um, English movie of the week type of thing about her um, that I thought was quite good, um, but uh, yeah, I haven't. I haven't. I, that's the only one that I've seen that uh, even came close to doing her justice. Well, I can tell you that what I saw on the Netflix one does not come anywhere near. In fact, it does her injustice. Uh. So it makes it seem they literally end on the note that, oh, she was just a failure if she was anything at all. Oh, my God. Um, And I just wanted to throw something through the TV screen. But we will set the story straight tonight because we're going to be talking about Boudicca. The Celts were a group, a tribe, a confederation that's a very broad grouping that was spread throughout Western Europe. Um, They were everywhere from what is now Great Britain to what is now France and Spain and Portugal and into Germany, exactly. Mm -hmm. Austria, yeah. Yeah, the northern Italy, just north of there Mm -hmm. as well. The Gauls were what they were called in that region. So you have Cisalpine and Transalpine Gaul all inside the um, sort of Italian peninsula and the Gaul outside of it, uh, just nearby, just over the, the border of the mountains. So they're a fascinating group of people. What What is particularly fascinating, especially to us, is just the kind of ferocious power the women had in that culture. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a quote, an old Celtic quote, it is women who fortune or misfortune give. Um, so they had a very strong influence and a very powerful sense. So yeah, what's, it, what's the thing you like about, tell us Strabo, how you found your way. Yeah. There's a, there's a quote by Strabo as well, who was a, a Greek writer and, uh, said the entire race is madly fond of war, high spirited and quick to do battle. Yes. Yeah. yeah. The, the fun thing about the Celts is, of course, they also produced just 
gorgeous um, jewelry. So they were artisans as well as warriors, um, particularly working with precious metals. Um, but, you know, I love, I, I love the whole sort of spirit of the berserker, you know, the whole idea of like, when it's time to do battle, you, you know, you chew the magic mushrooms, you paint yourself blue, and you run naked and screaming into battle. I mean, Imagine being a Roman seeing that. <laughs> Imagine being a Roman. See, because you're also seeing men and women, by the way, which yeah. a Roman would have been completely aghast by. Yeah, it would have been completely freaked out by. And, uh, yeah, and, you know, the whole, of course, uh, um, Roman war strategy is based on extremely specific, circumcised patterns of movement that, you know, they were rehearsed over and over and over and all that sort of thing. And, you know, everything was, was done to the beat of the drum and, and completely precise and all that sort of thing. And to be faced with, you know, essentially what looks like an entire race of, of suicide fighters, essentially, uh -huh. <laughs> you know, because they don't care. They're just, they're coming at you. <laughs> crazed blue they would the painting their body blue i also believe they use something in their hair a, a, a lie of some sort to make their hair like very blonde very white blonde so you have this really kind of like furious looking otherworldly creature screeching at you yeah and smelling because the the woad that they used had um urine and and feces in it so you know, when as soon as they were close enough to you, you'd also get hit by, <laughs> by a wave of scent that would not be all that pleasant. So. Now, why didn't we think of this for the new? We could make that a fad. That could be a new <laughs> quarantine makeup fad, like the feces and urine covered. Oh, I'll pass. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> we'll just say, looks in you know harness your inner warrior there put you on go. some yeah anyway put on but some they wood. yeah put on some wood. no it's it's and and you know, one of the things too that was interesting the romans would say they would talk about the because for the romans the romans would you know talk of themselves as the great empire and i love you know i'm always fascinated by the roman empire i love roman history but the Celts were bigger than they were. Romans were small and wiry. Right. Yeah. So for them, what they would like to say is, yeah, the Celts were bigger than we are, but we're the ones that know how to fight. We're the ones that can conquer. Right. But you could hear in that a real concern of you're just running up against a very big opponent. It's like, you know, contemporary sports. You know, you show up at a game and the other side is a lot bigger than you are. Mm -hmm. Better bring your A game. But yeah, the other side is bigger. And again, as for... Uh, tonight's discussion and they have women who are also bigger than you are exactly so. yeah the women the women were were on the whole were larger than the male roman warriors so yeah you know and they described um you know that the the women were charging with swords and axes and fell upon them you know with making hideous cries and that you know they would they would they would fight with their whole body. They would punch and kick and all that sort of oh, thing. And there's, uh, a, there's a, the great quote. I think it's uh, Ammianus Marcellinus. That's mm -hmm. the quote everybody sees where he says, when in the course of dispute of any of them calls in his wife being the Celtic men, 
a creature with gleaming eyes, much stronger than her husband. They are more than a match for a whole group of foreigners, especially when the woman with swollen neck and gnashing teeth swings her great arms and begins to deliver a rain of punches mixed with kicks like missiles launched by the twisted strings of a catapult. (laughs) There you go. She will beat your ass. Yeah. wild oh my god yeah so they uh, you know the romans you can tell there's this like this sort of horror of them that is you know one part disgust one part fear and one part admiration (laughs) yeah probably maybe if you could add another part there a part desire too i mean they just describe that being you know there is always that undercurrent that there is a beauty or an attraction to it. I mean, yeah. you hear it even in the, with the Greeks too, when they as, as misogynistic as the ancient Greek culture was. That right. even that goes through there. But the Romans, uh, not far behind in that category. But you could just tell they describe the way they describe them as power. I guess the other thing I think about with this too is you know when we take it in the contemporary world. First of all, you don't hear much about this in mainstream culture. Right. That these warrior women existed, that they right. existed on Mars. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, um, you, you uh, remember me pointing out how the movie Braveheart drove me up the freaking <laughs> wall because you know here is this entire warrior of Kelt uh, um, uh, battle, you know, with the entire army of Celts standing there, and you know, not a woman to be seen, of course. Can you imagine that scene and how powerful and intense that scene would have been if you had right. shown the good, you know, a, yeah. the, the good number of women warriors in that same setup, you know, that same structure, army right. structure? It would have been yep. ins- amazing, amazing. Yeah. Like what they do with Wonder Woman now with uh, the Amazons and Themyscira, even though, you know, I think they could be a little more open and involved with having these, these great contemporary female athletes in that capacity. Yeah. You know, it would be, it's great at least to see some of that. And it would be really great to see that in a real set piece army battle that you had about the Celts. It would be, yeah, I agree with you. It would be amazing. And why was that not there? Hmm. I wonder. Hmm, I wonder. Yeah. Well, I guess, did women fight back then? Oh, wait a minute. That's right. They did. <laughs> oh, and that, but see, that's the other thing. We're talking about rants. Uh, Dawn and I have talked about, you know, different kinds of things that kind of set or set us off about these, these issues. And it's sort of like, this information, whenever I've, I shouldn't say whenever, many times I've seen scholars say about the information the Romans say about the Celts, well, they were probably really not, you know, they're probably exaggerating, going a little further. This can't be really true. It's incredible how whenever it's about power in the ancient world among women, whenever it's about, you know, warrior, martial power, political power, any status, that's overblown in the mind of many scholars. But anything you say about any ancient man that right. burnishes his reputation has to be true. I mean, it's right. right there in the text. Yeah, I mean, the artifacts don't lie, right? It's uh, yeah. like my dad used to say about statistics. Statistics don't lie, but you can lie like hell with statistics. Mm. So it's the same thing about, you know, archaeology. Archaeology doesn't lie, but you can lie like hell with archaeology. They're having more trouble now. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. It's hard yeah. to hide it now. So God bless yeah. you, Janine Davis Kimball. God bless your soul <laughs> for showing the world that. And and also, you know, the rehabilitation. I if if 
needed of Maria Gambutas, who pointed a lot of this stuff out beforehand. Right. But the Celts are a perfect example of what was there in the West, what was a really rich warrior and rulership history of women in the Western world, which is just not seen at all. I think so much about, I guess what I find so insidious about entertainment and deeply problematic is it shapes people's view of the past. Like literally, I think people's image of the past is is almost entirely based on movies and TV shows. Absolutely. And, yeah. And how, how they show it is not how it was, so to speak. Yes, indeed. Indeed. With the Celts, we've got a really wide swath and so many things that we could cover and we may end up having coming having to come back to a lot of it. But where would you like to go first? Well, let's start with Boudicca, I think, okay. because, yeah, we have so much to say about her and her story is is one of the ones that is probably um, most well-known um, in an area where none of this is well-known. Right. But, um, but you know, there is the, the amazing statue of her driving her chariot um, on the bridge in London. So, you know, she's fairly well-known in London, of course, because her history lies beneath their feet every day. Yeah, um, she's a symbol. She, I know they likened, was it Elizabeth I they likened to her? Or oh, maybe. One of the, yeah, they, they often will, you know, lift her up as a symbol of, you know, sort of British sovereignty fighting against foreign incursion, you know. Uh, right, and the prowess of a, of a queen. Right. As opposed to a king, yeah. I believe Churchill said to uh, Queen Elizabeth II, the current queen, that he so delighted in saying the phrase, Her Majesty. There's a very deep well of appreciation of female leadership, I think, in, in Britain. Nice. Nice. I like that. So Boudicca's story is, of course, not entirely a happy one. It ends quite tragically. Um, but nonetheless, she managed to do what no Celtic warrior, king, or queen had done before her, which was she did manage to, for a time, unite all the Celtic tribes, all the Britain tribes, um, against Roman occupation. Um, the Celtic tribes, the Britain tribes, were notorious for constantly fighting amongst themselves. And uh, this is, of course, one of the reasons why uh, the Romans were able to make so much headway into uh, British territory is because there was no unified response. In fact, some of the tribes chose to welcome the Romans and uh, negotiate with them and find ways to live um, peaceably together and find ways to make Roman uh, resources contribute to their own wealth and prestige and status. So all kinds of different responses. Um, but Boudicca's tribe, the Iceni or Icini, mm -hmm. um, was was having none of it. And uh, so they were continually resisting um, the Roman uh, presence in, in what is now Britain. Um, she was a noble woman and um, she, uh, she entered the story around uh, the year 49 
ish. Okay. When she married uh, King uh, Prasitagus? It's, yeah, yeah, I think that's probably the best pronunciation. And by the way, 49 AD we're talking about, correct? Yes, yes, exactly. 49 AD, yeah. So they they reigned, they had um, a tense relationship with the Romans, um, but because there was a king, the Romans were willing to talk to him. They had two daughters. Um, and uh, then, unfortunately, uh, the king died in around A.D. 60. Now, he left half of his territory to the Romans in his will as a sort of, it was a customary thing in order to keep them from taking the whole territory right. when he died. Okay. Um, and so the idea was that the other half would go to Boudicca and that she would continue to rule the Aegini in uh, the remainder of the territory. Well, the Roman procurator um, was like, uh, no, number one, we, we don't particularly like your tribe in the first place, so we're going to take everything. And number two, uh, you know, we don't recognize a woman as heir and leader, so we're going to take everything. Um, so she resisted, of course. And then, um, there's a story that the Romans, um, came into her village and, um, took her daughters and raped and murdered them and strung her up and flogged her in the public square. Um, that's, that's what the, I think both Tacitus and Cassius Dio say. Yeah possibly the reason that they dared to sexually violate her daughters um, is because there was a practice among the Romans that you cannot kill virgins. You cannot kill female virgins uh, in war. Mm -hmm. So the way they got around that with um, tribes like the Icheni, where they weren't, you know, where essentially they had no recourse to law to, um, to prosecute uh, this kind of behavior. Um, so the way they got around not killing virgins is they would rape them first. And so now you're not a virgin anymore, so we can kill you. Oh, convenient. Yeah, it's the, the mm-hmm. typical war, uh, the kind of thing we see since the Nomnaya, as they're called, the Indo-European invaders into Europe, into old Europe. It's just crush the men and violate the women. It's a yeah. very old practice. Break the heart of the culture. Yeah. So that happened. And uh, bless her heart, Boudicca was not broken by it. She was, in fact, made even more determined to destroy the Romans and to drive them from her lands. So what did our and- Boudicca do? Well, she went around, she dressed herself in her finest <laughs> as the queen she was, right? She put on all her, her, her richest clothing and jewelry and she got on her war chariot and she went from tribe to tribe and told them her story and was so moving and so uh, electric that she did what no one else could do. And she got them to unite 
behind her leadership ship and attack the Romans. What do we know from the sources about what she looked like? Well, she had the the height and size of um of the Celtic women. She was supposedly over six foot tall and uh, and like uh, the um like many of the Celts um from possibly from uh, from their Viking blood, she had long red hair that she would let loose and would fly after her as she was riding on her war chariot. She also, um, you know, dressed in her finest. She also would, um, the rabbit was a symbol of one of their war god was a symbol of one of their gods. And um, so she would engage in a little bit of sleight of hand and magic. And she would often hide um, a hair inside her gown while she was speaking and at a an important you know like at the apex of the speech she would let it loose so it would fly out from under her gown and run across the fields and it would look like you know like magic she essentially pulled a rabbit out of a hat except she (laughs) pulled it out of her skirts in this case that so, that's that's a different kind of trick. Well, and there's also exactly one other thing. One other thing about that, I had read that she also had a booming deep voice, yes, which must yes. have been incredible. Because if I once heard, I'll have to see if I can find it. Uh, it was on YouTube somewhere. It was a woman speaking uh, Celtic language. Um, yes. It might have been uh, one of the Scottish dialects, and just deep gutturals that was just so powerful and amazing yeah. it rolled like you know sea waves coming out uh, so imagine this tall imposing powerful queen coming through with the booming voice and pulling rabbits out of everywhere <laughs> yes yeah shaking a giant spear as she spoke i mean yeah yeah how could you say no to that exactly how that- could you say no there's now that so amassed, I want to see that in a movie, by the way. But anyway, go on. Yes, yeah, absolutely. So she amassed an army of over uh, one hundred thousand Celts, and um, the first place that they uh, they descended upon was um, modern day Colchester, and uh, the Romans didn't really hadn't really prepared for war because they couldn't imagine that anyone could manage to get their vassals to fight together under one banner. You know, they had had the experience of seeing these tribes uh, fight against each other to their own detriment. So they were, they were rather unprepared when the first wave of, uh, of uh, Boudicca's forces came sweeping down on them. Um, so they not only sacked the town but, uh, and slaughtered the inhabitants, but they set fire to it, and the fire burned with such an intensity that ten, over 10 feet below the surface, there's a red layer of soil, which apparently was from that time period. They actually, it burned so hot, it actually changed the composition of the topsoil. So, so the listener knows, this is right now. So the archaeologists... When they went looking to see, looking for evidence of whether this occurred, when they reached the layer, which would have been around the, that time period, that's what they found. This charred, mm-hmm. this intensely charred soil. Yeah. Apparently it was, it melted brick 
it was so hot. Just unbelievable. So she burns down London and she, I, I she burns down Colchester, Colchester and then she, yeah. And then she turns towards London. And, um, so by this point, the Romans are starting to sit up and take notice. Um, but you know, with success, uh, making them stronger, um, and this giant, you know, just incredible mass of, of fighters, um, they swept aside the ninth legion on their way to London. And, uh, so when she reached London, um, because of the layout of London, um, was not very easily defended. Uh, mm-hmm. There is, uh, Tacitus says that, that the Romans essentially, and I wonder how much of this is sort of covering their own asses, but, um, but they said, you know, they decided not to make a stand at London. They decided to essentially yeah, sacrifice exactly. London. Um, we didn't want to, we didn't want to yeah, fight. We did. I mean, she yeah. got it. But, but it was, it was I mean, because was we weren't like, really, really engaged in defending it. I mean, you know. They scored all those points after we pulled out our starters. Yes, that's, that's right. How that yeah, there you go. Um, so St. Albans also, you know, uh, fell beneath her and there was an incredible massacre there. Um, and then... Yeah, she cut the heads of a lot of people, yes, let's say. She, yes. She had it quite a few. She was, um, she was brutal. All of the indignities that she suffered and that her people had suffered, she turned them on back onto the Romans with interest. Um, they they took uh, the captives um, and just mutilated them and uh, men and women. Uh, they you know they they. Um, cut off various parts of their body. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, just impaled people. There's a really gruesome uh, account where they said they uh, cut off the breasts of the women and sewed them to their mouths. I mean, just horrible, horrible. And just for the context too, for the listener, I mean, this is, I mean, obviously this, here's this woman, this, this ferocious response to the rape and murder and flogging and destruction of her people. But also, and it's, you know, this that's a horrific action to take, but just to understand, the Romans with Carthage, you know, was it uh, Carthage must be destroyed, uh, when they defeated the Carthaginians, um, literally salted it under. That's yeah. where we get so many of our expressions, these, you know, these Punic victories, these kinds of things where they, they just literally wiped out a civilization. Yes. They got so tired of fighting against Hannibal and the Carthaginians that they just put it out for good. Yes, they um, destroyed so, the land they, that so that no one could ever live in that place again. It's I mean, yeah, and, and, and as yeah, well as absolutely. decimating the people, yeah, and just eradicating traces of you know you and I don't were talking about how in the. Patriarchal civilizations like to erase history mm-hmm. of people either they conquer or they don't look uh, highly upon, and these are good examples of it. And I th- would say Boudicca's response: a lot of it is going to be, uh, this is a queen who knew what the Romans were like, and how 
her response, I think, was in a sense calibrated it by based on this. You're dealing with the the most brutal of the brutal yeah. in terms of the Roman Empire. So, um, anyhow, so yes, yeah, so she she had her own brutal response to make yes, a point. Yes, exactly. Yeah, she didn't make this up. You know, she she uh, had ample occasion of this kind of brutality visited against her own people. So, um, but, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, interesting to note that she was capable of just as much brutality, uh, brutality, excuse me, in response. So their victories, um, you know, the Romans kept hoping that the Alliance would fall apart because it had so many times in the past, but, um, it, it continued to grow. Boudicca managed to not only keep these people together, but to add more uh, Britain tribes to their alliance. And um, the final battle, the, the battle that turned the tide, unfortunately, against her, um, the Romans were outnumbered 20 to 1. So there were hundreds of thousands of of British warriors. But the Romans' understanding of strategy, in this case, um, gave them the advantage that uh, allowed them to turn the tide on the Britons. They They chose a spot for the battle very carefully. And they had been watching the um, Icheni style of warfare, their wild berserker style of warfare. But most importantly, war for the Icheni was a family affair. So with every battle, the whole family would come along and the people who weren't fighting, the elderly, the wounded, the children, would be bring, sort of bringing up the rear so that they could watch the battle happen and they could, you know, be vicariously part of the action it was right. you know it was a whole culture cultural um practice to be involved in warfare so the romans took note of this and they 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 chose a location where they were at a very narrow spot that opened onto a big field and where they were actually at a disadvantage because they were on low ground so they were actually attacking up upwards mm-hmm. but because Boudicca's army was followed by these caravans of non-fighting peoples that could not move very quickly what it meant was that when the Romans started to fight back and interlocked their shields and made this wall and started to push the Britons back, they had nowhere to go. It was a narrow, it was a narrow area. So they were squeezed into this narrow area and behind them were all these caravans of their families. And so a lot of the Britons that died in that battle were actually crushed to death because they had nowhere to go. They had nowhere to go. Um, well, these were also crack Roman legions that were finally coming. You know, they 
they started to bring in the starters. They started to bring in the first team. Right. And they uh, also after not taking them seriously. Yeah, you know? and they also had had time to analyze the way that the Icheni fought and um, you know, the the Britons were not smart enough or not educated enough in the Roman style of battle to not let them choose the ground, you know, to, yeah. um, to not run into what was very clearly a trap. So, well, the Romans, I mean, you have the bet, you have the, the great empire of the world. I mean, you, there is at the same time, China has developed its, its empire, its state is developing and had the two met, who knows what would have occurred. But I think it's a pretty fair argument to say that Rome was the top army in the world at, at the, the time. time. So yeah. they were fighting the, the best of the best. Yep. Do you, I also would, uh, do you have at hand some of the quotes from her uh, before this battle took place? Oh, um, any of her, uh, any of her like speeches? Yeah. I do not have those at hand. If you have them at hand, share them with us. Yeah. Yeah. The, one of them is one of my all-time favorite quotes, but uh, um, she says, this, she said, is not the first time that the Britons have been led to battle by a woman. It's a just, I think that quote itself sums up everything. Now, again, yeah. it's that's a quote from Tacitus, who is a respected Roman historian, except, of course, when he's talking about powerful women. <laughs> uh, then, then it's, you know, he's just coming up with this stuff, you know, probably dreamt it. Sure, maybe, sure, yeah. You know, had a few, had a couple of draughts of wine, and then, you know, said, well, it would be fun. Yeah, someone accidentally yeah. mixed his fan fiction in with his historical accounts. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so anyway, but the interesting thing about him is, if I'm not mistaken, he's the son-in-law of one of the officers who had been part of the battle against Boudicca. So he is actually a very good oh, source wow. for this. Uh, I will I will double check and confirm that. Um, but I, if my study of it serves me. I, he was he has a he is basically uh, can get a firsthand account of what it was like to face her. Mm. Um, and then uh, he and then this is I just. Uh, a quota that I've used in many ways and stuff, right? And stuff you and I do, Don, uh, for the the matriarchal uh, world that we're creating called the Infinite Realm. It's I, I think I've given the speech to the character that you play. But she says, you will see that in this battle, you must conquer or die. This is a woman's resolve. As for men, they may live and be slaves and captive, but I shall not. Yes. Yeah. So it, it, what's interesting about that statement, too, is because there were there were several accounts. I can think of one right offhand about the Romans talking about the Celts and in some cases the Teuton women as well, who rather than be captured, would kill yes, themselves yeah. and sometimes kill their children. So this quote, which is again from Tacitus, and I think would think, again, given his relationship to someone who had been part of this conflict it seems very realistic very probable i don't know why it would be dismissed out of hand so easily right. but i mean yes there is the argument you know she's speaking a celtic language how do we know what speeches but we could say that about a lot of different speeches in the ancient world exactly. so there's that a, is an incredible speech yeah there's a wonderful um speaking of of quotes there's a wonderful uh poem that is associated with um with a charm that goes, uh, loud they were, low, loud, when they rode over the barrow, bold they were, when they rode over the land, 
Shield thyself now, and you might escape this violent attack. I stood under the linden, under the light shield. When the mighty women made ready their strength, they sent forth screaming spears. Wow, where is that from? Um, it's a it's a charm, um, like a like um like a magical uh, invocation uh-huh. for a charm to protect yourself against um, against pain. And where where is this from? Oh, you, uh, this is a from? quote from the Woman Warriors book by David E. Jones, which is one of my favorite okay. books in existence um, because it's just a wonderful compilation of all of the um, uh, all of the mentions that uh, the author found of women warriors all over the world throughout history. I mean, it's it's an incredibly rich. Uh, tome of all of the uh, histories of women warriors around the globe. We're going to have to make our bibliography and put it uh, somewhere once as our, as our podcasts are up and the other uh, projects that we're doing, and just so people can have this resource and be able to find them. I know you have plans for other types of resources, which we will keep to, we'll keep quiet about, but um, <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, there, there is a, um, speaking of the, you know, fighting or dying, there's the, another quote from Appian, um, just to bring, bring this in, uh, we may, again, I think we're going to have to go with this, uh, subject over two different podcasts, perhaps. Um, So, but there's the Bracari, the Bracari are another tribe of Celts who were in Portugal. Uh, again, the Celts were spread all the way from Spain, through France, through Britain, Italy, parts of Germany, Switzerland. Um, but there was a Portuguese tribe called the Bracari, and they were doing battle with the Romans. And this is a quote from the Roman historian Appian. Passing over this, he advanced to another river called the Nemus, I believe it is, where he attacked the Bracari because they had plundered his provision train. They were a very warlike people, the women bearing arms with the men, who fought, never turning, never showing their backs or uttering a cry. Of the women who were captured, some killed themselves, others slew their children with their own hands, considering death preferable to captivity. It's an intense, intense uh, culture, and obviously an intense culture of female power, fury, fighting. Agency. Um, Female agency. Yeah. Yeah. Female agency. We haven't even talked about marriage and laws and other tribes. Um, Why don't we stop here? You think? Or do you think we can... Do you want to... Okay, if you're you're feeling up, if you're feeling... If you're feeling the Boudican fury, then let's go for it. All right. I've got the bit in my teeth and I'm running. (laughs) Go. Get in your chariot and exhort everyone. Exactly. Here comes my screaming spear. Oh, man. So, okay, well, since we're staying with it, let's talk about, uh, I'm going to go to another tribe in the region, Lusitani. Well, why don't you uh, first, again, yeah, why don't you first talk about um, what you were telling me about uh, status and how in, okay. in the Celts okay. it was not a matter of gender, but a matter of of rank and wealth let me find the quote there's a book called women of the celts by i'm hoping we pronounce the name jean marcal uh and uh in this work he talks about the legal framework of marriage in the celtic world and i'll 
I'll read through it. I'll try to cut some things out for speed and for uh, listenability. But um, he says Irish, or in this case, talking about Celtic laws, deal with three very different situations in marriage where the role of the woman or the man could change round completely. Meaning, you know, we have this image of the ancient world, particularly ancient world in the West, and I, I, I don't think you could be more erroneous about it, where you have this sort of like 1950s image of uh, male-female relations, this kind of surrendered wife around the home happily Father baking pies. Best. Exactly, which would have made no sense in the ancient world. But anyway, mm-hmm. um, you have, whereas the history of it, in these parts of the world are so different. So in this case, he's talking about uh, what he will talk about is three different kinds of marriage. That really is about wealth and status. Socioeconomic status, exactly. Yeah, Celtic tribal custom kept very good records. They were very aware at all times of the socioeconomic status of each member of the tribe. So everybody knew exactly. at all times where they stood in the ranking. Well, here's, I mean, so here's the example. So when the wife and the husband had a fortune equal to the husband in this case, and was of the same birth, so the same social status, uh, she was on completely equal footing. She could settle all contracts. Um, she could cancel contracts as well made by her husband if they, if they were considered disadvantageous. So it's a case where husband and wife, same status, social status, same wealth, it's equal. They had to be treated and looked at as equals. Now, when the wife was inferior in rank, so of a lower social status, and especially when her fortune was less than her husband's, these rights were severely reduced. So now you have what people think is a traditional marriage. You know, the husband is the king of the castle, and the master, and she is, you know, the happily you know, surrendered wife. But it was only in this case, only about economic status. And there's a myth that we'll talk about, Queen Mev, where she's debating the man she's married about who has more status. It was so important about who had more wealth and who had more status. And it led to something really uh, dramatic in the myth itself. Now, the last kind of uh, marriage structure was when the woman had a greater fortune than her husband. When that was the case, she was the unchallenged head of the family. So just hear that. In the ancient world, for the ancient Celts, if the woman had more money, if she was higher status, she's the unchallenged head of the family. The husband's authority was almost nil. Okay, He was referred to as a man of service or a man under the power of a woman. So it's really amazing uh, in fact, it says it has no say against her decisions. Mm-hmm. You know, she, her she decisions were She controlled everything. Yeah, she controlled everything. Controlled everything. Yeah. That's, that is really significant. I mean, I don't think, I mean, whenever you picture the Hollywood version of the ancient right. world, it is, like, I think you pointed this out on uh, the broadcast we did, Women Have Always Fought, that we have this idea that they're chattel, that they're just these domestics at home. And that's the ancient world, you know, the great, and I love Conan, the, the Arnold Schwarzenegger Conan. Uh, but it is very much that, you know, I want to hear the lamentations of women, right, you know, yeah. that kind of, like, and that, you know, he's the power And that conqueror, women were nothing know? but goods, you know, they were equal to a certain number yeah. of head of cattle or something like that. So, um, yeah. So in the Celtic tradition, that was 
you know, that notion would be laughable unless it was yeah. a marriage between a man of very high socioeconomic status to a woman of low socioeconomic status. And then it was about the money, not about the gender. That's really, if anybody takes anything away from this, that's what to take away, especially for the Celts. As Boudicca said, the Britons were used to being led by a woman in battle. Right. Um, did you did you mention the story about the Celts meeting being taken to Rome? Oh no, I haven't talked about that yet. Yeah, yeah. This is the perfect time to tell. Absolutely. Um, there's. Uh, it was during the time of Claudius and his wife Agrippa, um, who was uh, who was quite um, involved in uh, the Romans' battles and would often uh, join her husband in battle. Um, but uh, there's a wonderful story about how often they encountered women military leadership in, the, uh, in their wars against the Celts. And when they captured a group of uh, Celtic war leaders from Britain, a group that included men, both men and women fighters. Uh, and they paraded them uh, through the streets of Rome, as was their wont when they had conquered peoples. And then they marched them up to the Emperor Claudius. Um, the Celtic warriors lined up in front of Agrippa, his wife, because they assumed that she would be the military commander. They, the Celts, assume the woman had the power exactly. in that particular royal coupling. I mean, again, a, a, just another great example of something, well, you probably won't see in a Hollywood film anytime soon unless we make right. one. Give us the money. Give us the money. Um, we'll make one. Give us It'll the be money. awesome. Oh, we know so many I, Oh, my God. <laughs> could you imagine a battle scene that we oh, could come up with? One, oh, uh, you know what? We'll, we'll it, talk after the it podcast. It makes my little heart go pitter-pat is what, what I will say about that. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's an amazing, just an amazing, amazing image to think yeah, about, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Diocassius recorded that Romans found the body of women warriors clad in armor amongst the corpses that littered the battlefields um, when they fought against uh, the Germanic tribes of the Marcomanni and the Quadi. So this is, you know, all over Europe, the Celts um, had this tradition. And the interesting thing is because there was this power struggle, right, that whoever in the marriage was richer and had higher socioeconomic status. The interesting thing with the, with the Maeve legend, Queen Maeve and the Brown Bull, um, you know, is the story of uh, how she was trying to maintain the upper hand in their marriage. So she was... Let, let everybody know what the legend is, like who she is and so just she's a little a, bit about She's it. an Irish queen, and it's an oral mm -hmm. tradition. Uh, the story is called The Tain, T-A-I-N. Um, and, uh, that particular oral, oral legend, uh, talks about how she was trying to get a hold of this prize bull that was worth a lot of money because if she could, then her socioeconomic status would be so far above her husband's, the king, that she would essentially cement her place as his ruler that, you know, she would basically make sure that for the rest of her reign, 
she was in charge. I could think of, you know, a dozen plays you could make out of that one. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, cattle were were one of the primary sort of barter property owning um measures of wealth because um not only were they really important for, you know, for uh feeding your people, but um also a prize bull meant that um you would then be able to breed the bull and uh, make right. money off of the bull's offspring. So, yeah, so she um, she offered the bull's owner, you know, first she tried to negotiate. She offered the bull's owner um, land, chariots. She even said that she would be willing to give him access to her person for a night or two of sweet, sweet love. Um no, we should point out Maeve, Maeve was a very, um, very um, independently lusty kind yes. of queen. Am I putting it nicely? You are. For the, you are. Well, for the kids. You know, to, speaking of agency, you know, along with mm-hmm. financial and social and economic freedom, came freedom of person. You know, these were these were women that. When they were in control, they were in control of their own persons as well. And so if they wanted to offer themselves to someone for a night as part of a contract, who was going to tell them no? Right. They had, you couldn't. They, they had, had their had own the power. power. I mean, exactly. exactly. There, there is a description of Maeve that I found where it says, Maeve is described as a fair-haired wolf queen whose form was so beautiful that it robbed men of two-thirds of their valor upon seeing her. Nice. So it's an incredible description. That's a nice way of saying they got weak in the knees, you know? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's it's really just a – I mean, this is such a fascinatingly different world. Yes. To talk about – I mean, it's it shouldn't be because it is the world that existed. It is the nature of what it was like. Uh, you know, we when we talk about Western civilization, it is an important part of it. And I, I think, and we're going to have to definitely have a really, let's get uh, Gary and Vicky and all of us in on this discussion. I mean, to me, this clash between the Greco-Roman sensibility mm. of womanhood and what existed in sort of pagan Europe, well, I mean, the Greco-Romans are pagan, but what existed in, you know, the Celtic and Teutonic, the, 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 the other tribes in the, Saxons, in the area. And, yeah. yeah, the Saxons, yeah. exactly. Would be, is really... I think in so many ways at the heart of what we're dealing with just now as a culture, it's this push pull. You've got this undercurrent here, a history of this independence on every level that women feel. But at the same time, you have a structure inherited from a powerful civilization, two powerful civilizations that structures the world in a way that's very opposite. It says you should see the world very differently with respect to women than the way they are engaging it. Mm-hmm. So it's a really interesting clash. Yeah, yeah. And and are are busying themselves about rewriting history or emphasizing oh, only certain parts yeah. of history to to bolster their claims. You know, like we said in the Women Have Always Fought episode. Like if you don't see it, you don't you you have to see it to be it. You have to know that it can happen yeah. before you can imagine yourself doing it. So, yeah, I mean, the importance of telling these stories cannot be overestimated, in my opinion. 
and and telling them in a way that there's I, I tend to notice in Hollywood films, Hollywood entertainment, and I'm, I'm just picking out because Hollywood is the biggest for us in the States, obviously here in America mm-hmm. and anywhere in the world. It's the, it's the driving force of how things, how stories are told. You can see it affect the way stories are told everywhere in the world. Once a change occurs in Hollywood, um, because what I also know is in addition to, to erasing or hiding or burying some of this history that even when they bring it up, it's almost like this, patriarchal Aikido where it's like okay so we've got to tell this story okay we're going to tell it but we're going to tell it slightly differently just so it kind of gives it still the right shine for the great you know powerful king so you know in the end we'll show how powerful she was but um, she's going to fall for the great king because really at the end of the day she really wants to give her power to him so it's always this kind of strange you know way of telling whereas these stories are just this is what they were and Frankly, I think they're more interesting, to be honest. Absolutely. With you. The the actual the ancient ones. So you were talking of Maeve. So yes, yeah, so Maeve, you know, when uh, when the owner of the bull said, "Nah, that's all right, I'll keep my bull," um, and wasn't willing to negotiate for it, then of course, you know, so well, then what else is left but declare war? And uh, so Maeve went to war to get the bull. So the interesting thing about that is, and, you know, the stories of, um, of finding the bodies of, war, of female warriors on the field after a battle, all that sort of thing, is that this means that there was a structure as part of the society that was teaching women how to battle. Yeah. I mean, if they're going to war... They needed to have learned how to fight, right? Exactly. I mean, how would you? You wouldn't send in. I mean, yeah. yes. You wouldn't send anyone. You wouldn't send Karen untrained. from accounting into battle, yeah, right? Exactly. So, yeah. So there's um, a wonderful uh, uh, legend of two sisters who I mentioned before, uh, Scatha and Afa, who, um, who ran, essentially ran a military school. And they were considered the women to train with if you wanted to be successful in battle. Again, another really cool image you just don't see in mm-hmm. film. Now, where were they located? And uh, I think you have an interesting story about how you found out about them. Yes, yeah. Um, I would assume they were either Ireland or Scotland. Um I think Western Ireland, I think, is where they were supposed to be because they were associated with um, the Maeve legends. But I found out about them on the Isle of Skye in Scotland uh, when I was going to visit a sword cutler who I had read about um, who makes beautiful swords. Um, And as I was standing in his... um, in his shop and uh, he was getting ready to show us his forge. And that's not a euphemism. He actually had a forge. Um, (laughs) I noticed, I noticed a poster on the wall of, um, of a dramatic festival that had happened uh, several years prior. And um, it was a festival of artworks and uh, live theater and sword demonstrations all around the theme of Scatha and honoring her legacy as a teacher of warriors. That's amazing. 
just incredible. And you asked uh, you asked him about it, I believe, and he told you. He, well, yeah, he told me about it, and I uh, took a picture of the poster, and I still have it somewhere in my in my memories of Scotland. But yeah, I had never heard of her, and he was he was just as surprised that I didn't know who she was as I was surprised to learn she existed. So it's interesting how local culture, um, especially when it comes to the stories of strong women, tends to stay local. Yeah, for some really odd reason. I wonder why, why that could is. Why that be? Anyway. Maybe we should do a podcast about it. Um, <laughs> oh, oh okay. These, yeah, no, these are, these are just, just us talking about this is like, I just want to make the images of this. I just think so much of this stuff would blow people's minds. And I hope, again, with these podcasts that we get this out, people start to hear this, that it spreads because these stories should be told, you know, they should be known. Um, So Matcha of the Red Tresses is another story, again, Ireland, um, in 377 BC. So we're going back a little bit before Boudicca mm-hmm. and the Romans. Um, but Macha of the Red Tresses, in Ireland at that time, kingship was bequeathed through the female line. So even though there were kings, uh, the, the line of succession was bequeathed from the women of the family. So when... Are we hearing the... Uh... Faint sound of exactly. matriarchy, earlier matriarchy. That is the echo of matriarchy, yeah, yeah. The M word. Mm-hmm. So after the 76th king of Ireland, and I'm not going to try to say his name because I'm sure I will butcher the pronunciation, but um, the first name is yeah, A-E-D-H, and the second name is R-U-A-D-H. Um he died, and Macha was his daughter, so she was appointed to name his successor. And to the surprise of her brothers, especially, she named herself. <laughs> so immediately her brothers declared war on her because they wanted to take over the kingdom. So Macha killed one of them and captured her five nephews and held them hostage. And then she married her second brother, which I'm assuming was a political marriage, not an actual marriage. Um, yeah, let's, let's hope yes, right? for the kid's sake. And uh, so that assuaged him because he could be the consort of the queen. And that ended the war and she ruled herself um, as the Queen of Ireland for the remainder of her life. You know, it's funny because that just the name. You know, there's a lot of great uh, Celtic goddesses and war goddesses and myth, and we're, we won't even touch that here. Right. But um, those names come through with uh, with the ones that we hear from uh, Celtic history. Um, there, yeah, I mean, it's, they're spread throughout Western Europe. You know, from Ireland into Scotland. I mean, you. I mean, I believe in the Scot Scottish area. Oh, yes. The Picts are in Scotland, yes. right? Yes. So that's you're going to talk about. Yeah, the, there's, talk about a, them. there's a note about uh, the Picts who were allies of the Scots, who were of course a Celtic tribe before they took <laughs> over Scotland and named it for themselves. Um, that they also uh, selected their king from the female line. So there again, in the Pict tradition, was that echo 
of uh, ancient matriarchy. There also, I mean, I have to, and well, you know, we can add this as a coda somewhere or in writing, but I know there was something about the picked women and fighting as well. So um, when I was, it just, and it stands yeah, for tradition. When I was um, in Scotland for the Fringe Festival one year, um, my friend Kirstine and I decided to, uh, to go just sort of puttering around Scotland and the Highlands uh, because we had a little bit of time after the festival. And I fell in love with Pictish stones. And there are all of these picked stones um, all over uh, Scotland. And they are all inscribed with um, hieroglyph, uh, hieroglyphic language, a pictographic language. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and similar to the language of women, uh, no one has been able to translate it. So there, these symbols appear on these stones are clearly, you know, were chiseled into these stones to tell us something, but we, we don't know what they mean. So they could be so highly matriarchal. Yeah. And we have not cracked the code. We always can't crack codes when things might be highly matriarchal <laughs> because we, we, we also don't know what it says on Minos either, quote unquote Minos on uh, Knossos uh, in Crete. Yeah. Uh, so for that situation, we can't find anything about them. Lemnos, same thing, mm-hmm. reported to be matriarchal and don't know how their language can be translated. I'm sure someday somebody will get around to it. Um, actually, we're hoping that might be yeah, us. Right, but if, right. But, I hope yeah. it is you. Yeah. There's a note about um, Germanic tribes. So again, you know, Celtic um, heritage, that uh, the wedding mm-hmm. rite was that the husbands would provide their wives with a horse, a bridle, a shield, and a spear or sword. Yes. And she, in return, yes. would provide him with armor or weaponry. So it was an exchange of weaponry as um, wedding gifts to one another. And it's, you know, it's interesting when I read about that, how that is often explained away. You know, it's just ceremonial. It's, um, it reminds me of when, and I, I've told this story many times, when they discovered a tune, an Etruscan tune, mm-hmm that they thought was of a warrior prince and his beloved lady consort. And they had weapons and swords and spears buried with the prince. And then the consort's kind of half burned because she just had to throw herself on the fire for him. And then they were just, you know, celebrating this, this great find. And then when they did DNA, it turns out the prince was a princess and the consort was a dude. And suddenly it wasn't a warrior prince right. anymore. Uh, it was just some ceremonial things. So the same thing with the Teuton, you know, bridal exchange. That's clearly a warrior. I mean, that's just, yeah. <laughs> there's no other reason to do that. Yeah. You know, Why would they spend their limited like, resources on a horse, bridle, shield, and sword? Exactly. For purely it's just, ceremonial purposes? No. I I don't want to go off on the tan- my my rant tangent about what they see with you know women buried with weapons, but it's yeah. just picture, you know. Again, they're always saying it's that means that was the weapons of her husband. Just imagine the a, a Pentagon general's wife being buried today, and how likely it would she'd be buried with a tank. <laughs> anyway, uh, there you go. So. There you go. That's brilliant. 
That's brilliant. But yeah, no, the, the, the Teutons, we could, we'll have a whole thing on, on them because there's so many really interesting stories with them too. Uh, but yeah, that clearly is, there's there, I hear echoes, and I think you do too, of matriarchy mm-hmm. and what we talking about with old Europe at some point with Vicky and it's just amazing 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 amount of stuff thank you for this journey we're gonna do we have to we'll talk later we we'll have to do some more and figure oh, out how yeah. to get these stories yeah. out in some the way these are just and oh my god yeah yeah I'm looking at a, a yeah. quote here about the Romans facing the Teutonic Ambrones and the two and yes. a quote from Plutarch the Teuton women met them with swords and axes and making a terrible outcry, drove the fugitives as well as the pursuers back, the first as traitors, the others as enemies, and mixing among the warriors with their bare arms, pulling away the shields of the Romans and laying hold on their swords, endured the wounds and slashing of their bodies, invincible unto death with undaunted resolution. Amazing imagery. It was an image that they the romans usually associate with with women although interesting when i read you know you look things now on and that it's almost like people go in and sweep through it and it's like well this was about sort of everything but they called it furor teutonicus teutonic fury uh this this Mm -hmm. explosion of rage these women would have to like fight back or kill themselves or kill just like this just great martial no that they would set forth in battle so yeah um yeah, there's there's so much to to unfurl in this. Um, shall we return uh, to this at another yeah. time? Were you are you up for? That? Well, I think um, I think pr- probably uh, we are going to touch on a lot of these stories um, over and over again, uh, depending on the different uh, sort of angles that we take. Um, we've got a podcast coming up on women pirates that I'm very excited about. That'll be great. Um, that will be wonderful. So yes, you will probably we will probably be um, returning to these stories in one form or another quite a few times in the future. People need to hear them. So they do, on, and they're uh-huh. ripping good stories. They're great stories. We will we will make them so. That is a promise. Mm-hmm. On that note, thank Don, Sam, Alden, always for being part of this great fun as we talk about making matriarchy great again, the women warriors, and today was about the Celts. Thank you all for listening. I'm Sean Newcomb, and this is the 34 Circe Salon. <laughs>